Welcome back to EmigCast. I'm Trent Burgess, and for this episode, we're bringing you a philosophical discussion about a personal interest of mine surrounding physical diagnosis in the emergency department. I've found, and I'm sure that many of you listening have too, that there is some contention around the relevance of the physical exam in the face of increasingly powerful diagnostic technologies. And so it seemed to me that this contention could be especially poignant in the emergency department in the face of constant pressure to get the right diagnosis in the shortest time. So to get some perspective, I sat down with two experts in physical diagnosis, both attendings here at OHSU, one a hospitalist and the other an ED attending. I am Dr. Peter Sullivan. I'm an internist who works in hospital-based medicine here at OHSU. I've been teaching an advanced physical diagnosis course for probably the last 12 to 15 years, and I'm the clinical thread director for the first-year curriculum for patient history exam and diagnostic reasoning. Rob Cloutier, I'm an associate professor of emergency medicine and pediatrics. I am one of the, I'm the fellowship director for the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Fellowship Program, and one of the portfolio coaches for the new curriculum. And uh, the other thing I do on campus here is I'm one of the core faculty for the Human Investigations Program. So Dr. Cloutier is a very broadly qualified emergency medicine attending with a specialized expertise in diagnostic reasoning. Dr. Sullivan is a hospitalist attending who many here at OHSU consider to be a pinnacle expert in physical diagnosis. I'm going to ask them some tough questions about the relevance of the physical exam and what they see as the future for one of the oldest tools we use as physicians, the stethoscope. I hope you stick around and hear what they have to say. What is physical diagnosis? So I, I think of physical diagnosis as um, uh, observations and findings that are picked up without the use of high technology tools. So they would be for the most part low technology tools, things like stethoscopes, things like um, reflex hammers, I would include ophthalmoscopes, I would include blood pressure cuffs. I'm, I'm not including ultrasound in that and part of it is that I'm not somebody who, who uses that routinely. I think some people do see it as an extension of physical exam. I think you could take technology and, and um, portray them all as extensions of the physical exam, but I'm, I'm sticking with the low-tech stuff because that's what I do. I have to sort of echo that. I think the other way I sort of look at it is I look at physical diagnosis as a diagnostic test. That diagnostic test for me falls into a cascade of Bayesian-type reasoning. And so I then couple all of that along with more objective testing or high-tech testing that is either laboratory-based, it might be ultrasound-based, um, it might be radiographically-based as well. So I, I, I try and put um, physical diagnosis in the scheme of all the other elements that I use to help me make medical decisions. Dr. Cloutier just made a reference to a pretty specific technique known as Bayesian reasoning. In case you're not familiar with it, like me sitting here trying to interview him, Bayesian reasoning is a method of evaluating the probability of an outcome given multiple contributing factors. In this case, Dr. Cloutier is referring to a specific disease as the outcome, so he's talking about a differential diagnosis, each with its own probability and contributing factors. Now that we've laid a bit of foundation, I want to get right to the heart of the issue with a quote from an OHSU physician that I think will sound familiar to many of our listeners. We should all just hang up our stethoscopes because the real way to diagnose people is to order tests and order CT scans. Well, I think any diagnosis starts with the history. You absolutely need to start with the history. And there were some data back in the 
70s and 80s that talked about what percentage of diagnoses were made based on the history alone. It was pretty high, it's about 80%, and I'm guessing it's probably down now. Um, but I think you have to start with the history, and I think you, you still want to be good at a physical exam. The physical examination is, is cheap. It's essentially free. It's just a, a use of your time. And I think that if we are going to move away from using things like stethoscopes and moving to things like ultrasounds, uh, I'll stick with ultrasound before I get to CT scan, then I think you're going to have to use the ultrasound on every part of the body to screen the patient the same way that you would with a traditional physical examination. Um, and CT scans are, are, are not free, and uh, there's certainly a certain amount of danger to patients, not just from the radiation, but from the dye. I also think that, that uh, this, this could get me going on a rant. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that statements like that are particularly dangerous, especially with young learners who are new to medical decision-making, because what it fails to appreciate is the difference between screening and diagnostic testing, and they're very different. Because what screening is all about, screening is about testing a healthy population. It's about testing everyone to find disease. And the statements like that don't take into account that all tests have performance characteristics. And they have sensitivities and specificities attached with them. They have false positive rates and false negative rates attached to them. And so careful what you wish for when you order a test because they're not perfectly positive or perfectly negative in conjunction with the truth of what a patient may or may not have. Uh, my feeling is, is we could get by with a whole lot less testing in this country if we as physicians became more knowledgeable about understanding if I order a test, is it going to change what I do? And I, uh, I hammer my residents with this on a regular basis. Uh, so I, I would say that uh, I, I don't disagree with hanging up the stethoscopes because I actually think things like ultrasound are going to become the new stethoscope and I think are going to potentiate advanced physical diagnostic skills in a way that we've never really been comfortable with. Because one of the faults I would have for the physical exam is I think that the way it is taught and the way different specialties that people go into end up diffusing some of their physical exam skills. Um, the ability to maintain some degree of consistency with the physical exam as a reliable diagnostic test with a really strong set of performance characteristics can be highly variable. And it would, I would hope that an ultrasound in the hands of the right people might find a way to sort of narrow that variability and sort of reintroduce a consistently high level of test characteristics for certain physical exam findings. You raised a couple of interesting points that I wanted to talk about. The, um, the point of variability of training and the resulting inter-tester variability in physical diagnosis skills. So how should students better access training and how can training be improved in order to reduce this inter-tester variability? So I think that um, you have to start off philosophically and decide whether you think something is worth teaching. So some people may not think teaching people to use a stethoscope is worth doing. I, I, I do feel that it is worth doing, and I find it useful in what I do. And you know, true disclosure, part of that is because I'm not savvy with ultrasound. So, um, And I think that, as with anything, you really should have formal training in it. So if we look at radiologists who are, who are looking at CAT scans. So if you said a CAT scan has certain performing characteristics for the diagnosis of things like cancer or with CT scans, that's in the hands of somebody who's been trained in it. And if we're not going to spend that time working on people's skills with things like the stethoscope, then how would you expect anybody to be good at it? You need to be able to calibrate it. 
So um, the question would be, do you feel that, that it's a skill that's still worth teaching? And I do think it's, it's worth teaching. I think that right now uh, ultrasounds are still pretty expensive. At some point, they're going to come down and they're going to be a lot less expensive. Um, but I'm, I'm actually going to use you as an example of a patient, if you've got time to hear a quick sure. anecdote. So uh, there was a young woman, 26-year-old woman, who um, was born in Mexico and spent kind of half her life in the U.S., half her life in Mexico, and presented to an outside hospital with um, numbness on the side of her face and difficulty walking on her right side, and she thought she was having a stroke. And she, her only past history was that she had, in her own words, palpitations. So she went to this local ER where they have all the technology in the world and told them her symptoms. And they wrote in the chart that she has quote-unquote palpitations, which made it sound like she was this woman with hysteria, and that she had these symptoms that had since resolved. So they went ahead and did a CAT scan of her head that really was unrevealing, and told her there was nothing wrong with her and sent her home, and she felt, well, there's something wrong with me, but I guess if you're not going to figure it out, I'll go home. And her entire physical exam that was documented, whether they did it or not, was pretty unremarkable, including a heart that was regularly written rather than numbers or gallops. So the next morning, she wakes up with severe right lower quadrant pain, comes back to the ER, they think she's got appendicitis, they order a CAT scan with contrast, and she has a renal infarct. So now they're freaking out, thinking she must have something like APLA. Antiphospholipid antibodies. So you start doing a lot of expensive tests. They do an MRI of her brain to look to see whether she's stroked out. They didn't see that. Meanwhile, her examination is really rather than rubs or gallops. She starts getting shorter breath. They get an x-ray that shows that she's got pulmonary edema. Somehow, they think that that could be associated with a PE, so they order a CT angiogram. CT angiogram is negative. Um, she starts coughing up pink, frothy sputum, and they think she's got uh, diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, and they send her to ICU intubator and do a bronchoscopy on her. And then finally, somebody thinks maybe it has to do with her heart, and they did an echocardiogram. So I brought Trent in the room as a first-year medical student, didn't tell him anything about her, and I said, listen to this heart. And it took him about 10 seconds to say, is this mitral stenosis? Because her murmur was unlike any other murmur that he had heard. It didn't fit with anything else. Okay, I just have to interject for a moment. Although I paid Dr. Sullivan to insert my name in the story, I think the real takeaway is that any medical student could have done the same thing. Any first year with a physical exam training from committed teachers like Dr. Sullivan can use their fundamental physical exam skills to hear something like a diastolic murmur and potentially make a diagnosis without such extensive testing. Really, guys, if I can do it, anyone can. So you weren't confident, though, because you'd never heard it before. And I actually made a recording and brought it home to my 16-year-old daughter to see if she could tell what it sounded like. And without any auscultatory training at that point in her life, she could tell that there was an abnormal sound that she could mimic. I said, what is the, you know, this is a heart, what does it sound like? So th this was not rocket science, and this is something that should have been picked up as just part of a routine physical exam. Not to say that this also shouldn't have been picked up just from history taking and diagnostic reasoning. When somebody, you know, this is a board's question, 26-year-old woman from Mexico with palpitations comes in with vascular phenomenon in various places. Th this, is, this is cardiogenic. It's also a very simple test, too, in terms of just a chest x-ray and EKG on the first yep. visit. Yep. You know, might yep. have been very, very telling. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, what you sort of see there is how testing begets more testing. Diagnostic testing is a little bit like being inside a tree. Okay, and It's very easy to get away from the trunk, and you start going out on branches that get thinner and thinner, and you have a harder time finding your way back to the trunk, which is where the point is. Uh, where you need to remember where that's where you started. There's also a lot of um, anchoring and yeah, cognitive bias sure. going on here too. And then yeah. testing to create more testing, and then you're testing your testing, 
And that's when things get dangerous. When you're testing, you're testing, you need to stop. Yeah. Because you're not creating a line of reasoning that is logical, especially when you're ordering tertiary tests. And I consider things like CT scans, especially contrast-based testing. Yeah. I consider that tertiary testing, MRIs, tertiary testing. Yeah, she had three CTs and an MRI and a bronchoscopy and then a huge workup for antiphospholipid antibodies and different things that cause pulmonary hemorrhage all within about a 12-hour period where, where really she just needed a thoughtful physician. Could have, as, as you said, she, they could have gotten it without even doing auscultation just from thinking about the heart, maybe getting an X-ray of the heart, an EKG, and then that lead them down the pathway of getting an echo. But in her case, really, I mean, her... Her, her murmur was not a difficult thing to hear. It was very audible. It was very unlike anything you'd heard before. So in my time here, um, I used to be when Lynn Loria was chairman, and if VIP people came in, then he would call on me to see male VIP patients and SEMA decide to see female VIP patients. It was a very uncomfortable situation because these were outpatients. I don't do outpatient medicine. It's a very different practice, different pretest probability. But a couple of patients that were shunted to me were both prominent OHSU physicians who had seen a number of specialists. And the specialists, I described them as looking through microscopes at the patient, not really taking a step back and looking at them. And they were both older gentlemen without a whole lot of significant past history who went through a number of different diagnostic tests and specialties. So one had um, a kidney taken out, another one had a spleen taken out. They both had many endoscopies and this and that. And they both had endocarditis. And the diagnosis was completely missed by cardiologists in both cases, uh, by infectious disease specialists, by urologists, by ophthalmologists to look it in their eyes. And what they really needed was somebody just think about it and go through. And they both had loud regurgitant lesions that were easy to hear in stethoscope that led them to the blood cultures and the echocardiogram that confirmed the diagnosis. It seems like you're describing kind of a philosophy in conjunction with the physical diagnosis in terms of stepping back and looking at the broader picture and evaluating from the trunk, you know, which line of reasoning are we trying to follow here. Yeah. And it seems like um, you're implying that physical diagnosis lends itself better to that or encourages that philosophy more? I'm not sure. And some of it, you know, it may just be the practice bias that I have, that by the time that people get to me, you know, <laughs> a lot of other things have been done. Yeah, uh, but it, it, that is important to remember. In a sense of, this has gotten to me at this point, they've already spent a lot of time out in the branches. Yeah. And then they get to us. And so we will approach patients like that a little bit differently because all of a sudden the pretest probabilities have changed. Okay, because there's going to be a few things that looking at that testing done at outside places or if you're looking at records of other specialists who've already seen the patient, there's a bunch of things that he's already been able to rule in or rule out. Yeah. And so we, we can approach it, you approach it from a different vantage point than if the patient is completely new to you. I think one yeah. of the nice things that you brought up, Peter, that I think is important to realize is sometimes specialty referrals are going out in the branches there. Um, yeah. Because you know that that's a tertiary. I consider sometimes going to a specialist a tertiary diagnostic test. And why I always encourage people before they do a consult is make sure you have a very well formed question for that consultant. Because you need to guide that consultant the way you guide any other diagnostic test in terms of saying, I need to talk to you about this aspect of this patient. This is my question for you that has to do with 
your area of expertise. And the more information that you get, the cloudier, murkier the picture is. I think a lot of times learners think, oh, I just need to order more tests, and then you just get more and more lost in it. And I think it's almost like, you know, you hear that phone numbers are seven digits because that's sort of our digit span. And it's, you can think of these diagnostic tests as sort of a digit span. Once you get beyond it, you just can't process anything. And that's why when I tell my residents to present information where they start off with sort of an opening line of, oh, this is a 45-year-old man with a history of IV drug use that comes in with fever. If you also put in that he's got a history of hypothyroidism, this and that and the other, and you exceed that digit span, the listener is not going to be able to follow the story. So you really need to stay within, within boundaries. How do you perceive the state, or what is the state of physical diagnosis in emergency medicine? And you're you're seeing it from the receiving end, and you're seeing it from the practicing end. My answer is I don't I don't know because I'm not there. Um, I do know when I'm teaching things like auscultation to students that I'll tell them that it's hard to do it in certain places. And the examples I use are in emergency rooms and in dialysis rooms. The dialysis machines have a certain whir that really will mask a lot of cardiac sounds. They're not loud, but it's just really hard to hear heart sounds there. And I'm imagining that in emergency rooms where oftentimes you can't close off and, and seal the room to make it quieter, it's really pretty hard. So what I tell, people, so tell the students, if you're in a clinic, then you should be able to get a quiet room. If you're on the wards, even if the patient's just sharing a room, you know, tell people to turn off their TVs if you really want to take, take a good listen to, to really hear. So this is for cardiac auscultation. I think that it's, it's much more challenging in certain areas, and especially loud at ER, it might be really hard to hear subtle sounds. You never heard about the dialysis room. I think that's, that's interesting. Um, the state of physical exam in emergency medicine, I, I don't think it's where it absolutely needs to be. I, I mean, I certainly feel like I have better diagnostic skills in physical exam myself. There's a constant tension in the emergency department between what it is that is coming in and what it is I need to do and what it is I need to complete. Um, so when I look at the emergency department, each patient is an individual, but also each patient in, the in their room in the department is part of a larger picture that I have to look at. So when I'm looking at the board, I have a certain number of patients in the waiting room, I have a certain number of patients in the department. and Depending on how well-managed that population is or what are the pressing priorities I have will sort of guide some of my physical exam um, priorities. And I will make my physical exam be focused on the things that I think are going on. Because I, and I do a head-to-toe exam, but I have to say that for me, the most important parts of my physical exam are some of the observations that you make just watching a patient talking to them, taking a history. Um, this is especially true with children. Um, the, the, the pediatric emergency physicians I've respected the most are people who can make diagnoses from five or 10 yards away. And, and, it's, and, and they can't tell me what it is, but they can look at a kid and they can say, that kid has meningitis. And, you know, nine out of 10 times they're right. And it's a look, you can't describe it, it comes with experience and there's a there's a lot to be said for just looking at a lot of nonverbal behavioral clues, behaviors that a patient might have, and some of this goes up to adults as well. Um, and so I, a lot of that is a very subjective thing, and then I'll tailor the parts of the physical exam that I value the most, sometimes around many of those historical clues, but also those sort of subjective clues that a patient is giving me, what they're saying, what they're not saying, um, how they phrase things. How I perceive they manage pain. Um, you know, yesterday is a great example. I mean, I had a 15-year-old kid in the emergency department yesterday with a grade five splenic lack. 
who had done that 24 hours before and had just stayed at home with that. And so, but you know, his, the nonverbal clues and the, just the way he held himself in the bed and wouldn't move and couldn't lie down told the whole story uh, before I even touched his belly and it, it sounded like tapping on a table. Uh, so, I mean, those are some of the things that you pick up, I think, that just come with experience. And so, you know, you look at your emergency department, and you're looking at the five rooms in front of you, and you see that patient there without even having done a formal physical exam. I already know that that's at the top of my list. I think if you look back at, like, how the ancient Greeks uh, saw patients, you read some of Hippocrates. I mean, he, he describes really a number of different facies of different disease entities, and it's sort of the same thing that you're describing. The kid has a certain facies where you just knew he was sick, and there was absolutely no doubt. This, this wasn't a kid you were going to send home. He was going to need a more thorough evaluation, and you had a pretty strong suspicion of what was going on and where, even before before you even touched him. So I think I think that's really powerful. It's especially true in pediatrics because there's yeah. so much of pediatrics that I think is very subjective. And I think within the culture of pediatrics, it's not uncommon for people in pediatric emergency medicine who have to admit a patient, and usually infants in particular, and the only thing that you're really admitting them for is there's just something wrong. Yeah. This child gives me a bad feeling, yeah. and if I call any admitting person here at OHSU and tell them, yeah. this kid just gives me a bad feeling, can you just yeah. please admit them? And they'll say, absolutely fine. Yeah. yeah, no problem. And as you go through your training, um, really respect um, experienced <clears throat> nurses who have that feeling, because they, they, they will have that sense that something is really wrong with certain with a certain patient, and you'll see it also with, sometimes with patients' family members. You know, why do, why did they bring them in on this day? There was something that maybe they can't articulate, but there was a feeling that they had. And um, you know, I'm sure this has happened to you before. People might call you up for medical advice. If it hasn't happened yet, you know it's going to. And if somebody calls up calls you up for medical advice, you know, it's usually there might be something going on that they can't really tell you. So you have to be very cautious in advice that you give to family members over the phone. I don't know if you have a policy about this, but Rich Harper, when I was when I was a resident and I was giving some advice over the phone, he heard me, uh, really sat me down and talked about how dangerous that can be. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely one of one of the things that you can't appreciate is is really what caused that person to make that phone call. And if they're worried enough to call you, maybe they're worried enough to be seen by somebody. And then they can make that decision. And if they're not worried enough to go see by somebody, maybe it's not a serious problem. It's the same thing with um, patients who are like high tech patients. Patients who are like maybe cognitively devastated from an anoxic injury, particularly you'll see this with children. Yeah. Those parents won't bring their kids in, and it'll be just based on a feeling, yeah. a behavioral cue. And those are, you know, there's a few things I never doubt. Yeah. Patient, parents of high tech children. Yeah. It, whatever they ask me to do yeah. for the child, I will do it. And I really cannot um, echo more loudly the uh, if, if you have a nurse that has a bad feeling about something, just go with it. If, if a nurse, and this has happened more than, within the last couple of weeks, yeah. Yeah, I really think you should with this guy. It's a diagnostic test. I, I consider yeah. that a diagnostic yeah. test. Yeah. And it's a very sensitive test, yeah. right? You're going to end up admitting a, a, a certain subset of patients who will probably turn out to not necessarily have needed that admission. But I can guarantee you that there'll be one, I would say, depending on the nurse, anywhere from, I would say, 10 to 20% save rate on something like that. Okay. Those yeah. would be the patients that you didn't think need to be admitted. And then like, I would admit that patient to Peter and then I'd run into Peter in the cafeteria and that patient will have been in the hospital for five days because yeah. you're still trying to work him up and figure yeah. out what's going on. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so, the, the nurse scan can be very sensitive. Yes. <laughs> and the other thing that's important about that nurse scan is that builds team trust. Yeah. It builds a lot of team respect, yeah. and it creates uh, a lot of interprofessional uh, synergy, I think, that is uh, should never be sold short. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that you know it's still relevant, <clears throat> it's still applicable. Um, can you give me a sense of, you know, I guess you've, you've got a little bit of arc now to your careers. Are you seeing physical diagnosis increasing, decreasing, constant, or are you learning new appreciation as you gain more experience? Uh, I think I've always been interested in physical exam. Um, since medical school, I really like dermatology. I mean, dermatology, is, it's all about the physical exam. Um, I, I, I also, I'm... My, my bias is I also like unusual things, so I'm attracted to, you know, things that are unusual. So I think I've just always been interested in it, always tried to work on it, um, still still learning. Um, so for, my, for me personally, yeah. I would say I think over my career I'm watching clinical maturity take longer to achieve. And I think that that is we keep medical students and residents further away from independent, critical medical decision-making, I think, to a degree that harms their ability to develop a skill set of reliable physical exam findings that they can trust and say, I'm trusting myself on this physical exam finding because last week I did the same thing that worked. And I, and I did it by myself, or I did it quasi-independently, or I've gathered that finding and I brought it to my attending and my attending verified it and then we moved forward from there. And so as a result of that, I think physical exam, there's a significant emphasis on it, I think, in medical school. I think that the ability to apply it in a consistent, frequent manner as a medical student and as a young resident can be somewhat variable. And so I would never downplay its importance. I think we should increase its importance. But I also have to share my bias being in a field that's been an early adopter of ultrasound in that what I'd like to see is I would love to see ultrasound buttress and leverage physical exam in a way that we can find a way to create a synergy between the two that will, um, I think in many respects, could reinvigorate lots of aspects of yeah. basic physical exam and I think could bring it back into the yeah. forefront. The one area of physical exam that I would say in emergency medicine that I think should be far more stressed is the neurologic exam. Yeah. I think missing murmurs in, um, in the ED is quite possible if they're subtle, but uh, I find that for the things that we worry about the most in the emergency department, which are things such as acute myocardial infarction and very dangerous dysrhythmias, the EKG and a lot of other physical exam findings can help us. The one thing that I find much more difficult is that subtle stroke, sure. TIAs, um, and there's a you know we deal with a lot of dizzy patients, yeah. and the, the the ability to differentiate acute neurological emergencies um, is extremely important. I think I think doing a neuro doing a, a neurology elective if you're going into emergency medicine I think is a great idea because yeah. <laughs> I think that. Time is brain with stroke. I think we have, there's a whole emphasis on that. I'm asked to evaluate possible strokes four or five times a shift. Yeah. Um, and I think that 
that's something I wish I was a little bit strong myself was a little bit stronger. So you raised the neurological exam. You've raised the um, the cardiovascular, the um, oscillatory exam. Are there any other specific areas where you find that your students or your colleagues or anyone else is really lacking in physical exam or physical diagnosis skills? Things that maybe our listeners could focus on during their learning. Well, I'll bring out a controversial one because there's there's uh, not that everything else we haven't been talking about is controversial, but um, the the volume assessment. So the JVP. So there's there's a body of literature that dates back to the 70s where they looked at some very difficult to examine um, patients that were mostly on ventilators and in central lines, and they found that the sensitivity and specificity of JVP examination was around 50%. So frequently I'll hear people say, well, it's a coin flip, why use it? And since then, there have been other studies that have shown um, actually pretty high um, uh, diagnostic accuracy, especially at very high JVPs and very low JVPs. So if the, if the, if the viewer sees it, and for, for the podcast people, if they want to look up, um, Steve McGee has this book called Evidence-Based Physical Diagnosis, which has likelihood ratios for all sorts of um, physical exam techniques that we do. And if you feel that your JVP uh, assessment is at least 12 centimeters or higher, I don't remember exactly what he said the likelihood ratio for you being right is, but it's somewhere close to 10. And... Um, to compare that to a likelihood ratio of somebody that you're evaluating for chest pain, do they have coronary disease using something like a stress echo or exercise treadmill test or how they're all around the four or five positive likelihood ratios. This is actually a pretty powerful thing. And I find, unfortunately, that even our cardiologists, I think because they've gotten away from um, bedside medicine and they're more techno-based, actually will, will miss things like the JVP examination. One thing, you bring up a very interesting point, and this is, I think, one of the cruxes where I think that we can bring things such as ultrasound and physical exam findings together. You, know, you bring up the idea of the JVP examination and then coupling that with an echo. Yeah. Well, the idea is that when you think about it from a Bayesian standpoint, right, that one test can inform the next test. So if you start with a pretest and post-test probability with a JVP examination, and let's just say you start with a pretest of 20%, and then you do your exam, and the patient has a very high JVP, and you give a likelihood ratio of 10, and I, will, I won't bore you with the nomogram, but um, with a, a likelihood ratio, positive likelihood ratio of 10, then you, know, you can bump that post-test probability of the JVP exam so that the post-test probability is, let's just say, 70%. And you say, well, hey, you know, I'm not convinced enough now. I'm going to get an echo. But realize that when you order that echo, your pretest probability right now before you order that echo is now 70%. Okay, so you get a positive, you only need a little positive likelihood ratio out of that echo to push your push yourself up to 90 or 100% of uh, post-test probability of disease. And you could alter that sequence if you wanted to. You could do the echo first and then do your JVP exam second. Realizing the importance of how the post-test probability of your first test creates the pre-test probability of your next test. And so that is where places where we can harness the use of technology and physical exam findings as sequential test modalities to help one to inform the, the post-test probability of one to inform the pre-test probability of the next test. I think that's the best place where we can bring together some low-tech ideas that are easy to teach with the higher-tech modalities of ultrasound, which I, I think are going to continue to explode and I think are going to just make us sharper as diagnosticians in general. 
So that's it for this episode of EmigCast. Be sure to check out EmigCast.com for notes from this podcast and to post your comments or suggestions. Thanks to Dr. Sullivan and Dr. Cloutier who donated their time for this episode. And thanks to you, our listeners, for all your support. Be sure to tune in next time when Andy Lichtenheld will be discussing medical myths.